1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And we're going to begin in verse 1 tonight. And Paul is writing here, you just want to look at the first seven verses, and it's just on the topic of ministers and stewards is what I want to talk to you about here tonight. And so mostly you can map, and uh, this will be for me and maybe a few of the other men in here who preach, and that'll be that. The rest of you are covered tonight. Now I think uh, there's application for us all here. So let's read um, chapter 4, verse 1, down to verse number 7. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above all that which is written, that no one of you may be puffed up for the one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Let's pray. Lord, bless the time that we have in your word. This is our prayer. This is what we ask of you. Calm our thoughts that we might have peace in our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to be able to meditate upon it, to be able to use it to grow, to become more like Christ. Holy Spirit, speak to us, we ask now, through Jesus' name, amen. Probably the best way to approach what Paul is transitioning to now in chapter 4. So chapter 1, 2, and 3 to the Corinthians, he sort of laid out his case. There's division in the church. Some of you are saying, well, well, I'm of Apollos. Some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some of you say, I'm of Cephas. And he's dealing with that. And he's saying to them, no matter what the other issues are that I'm going to write to you about, the root issue is you're putting your faith in men instead of in Christ. And so he's dealt with that along the way. Now he's going to address, in our specific context tonight, the specific, these, these particular men that they were putting their, their hope into. And he's going to talk to them about how you should regard Christian leaders and then why you should regard Christian leaders this way. But I want you to get a note of his tone as we enter into this. And I think this is a great way to illustrate it. Do you remember at some point in your life, either you did this or, or a parent did this to you, you were told to do something and you asked why, and their answer was very simple. Because I said so. Yeah, that's the answer. And why is it that a parent can give us that answer? Because they're the parent. So this is Paul's tone here in chapter 4. This is right because it's what I'm telling you. And Paul is saying, and I can tell you this because I'm the apostle. So I think we can all say amen there, right? And that is not me trying to steal Paul's authority. I, I'm just the guy up here reading the letter to you. What I'm saying is, is Paul's saying, 
do this because I'm telling you this is the way it ought to be. But he makes his case so well that I think we'll be convinced of it. So let's begin with verses 1 through 5 and the heading of this is how you should regard Christian leaders. And Paul starts here with just some instruction to Christian leaders. He says in verse 1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In our context, we will apply this to the pastors we have right in our own church. But I also want you to take the teaching here and use it for all of us. Any of us who were ever in leadership in any capacity can, can hear and understand and use what's being talked about here. So if you lead a committee, if you lead a group, if you lead in your home, if you lead a child, Whatever it is that you lead, the things that he says here are very applicable. But with that, I also need you to be hearing this as this is how you should regard those that God has put in front of you as a leader. And we have those people in our church. So we apply this to the pastors. We also take the teaching here and apply it to ourselves. What does Paul say? Let a man so account of us. Or this is how you should regard us. Now the, the us, the pronoun there, in the, the, the immediate context is Paul, Apollos, Cephas, which we would know to be Peter. And I don't think he mentioned anybody else. I'm trying to think if he did. But he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So when he says to us, this is specifically who we would be talking about there. The general context, the us there, would just be the elders in the church. Those who were teaching doctrine. Those who were giving these people the word. So he says here, this is how you should regard us. Why? Because he said so. Well, why? Because he's Paul the Apostle, right? That's the tone that we get there. And he writes there that the Corinthians should view him and other leaders in two ways. Now, this is where it went off the trail for me. Because I was reading this along and I said, way to go, Paul. Stick it to all those church attenders. (laughs) Now they ought to treat the preacher. But he said, no, this is how you should This is how you should respond to us as ministers and stewards, servants and non-owners. Those are the words I want you to have in your mind as we go through this. Let's start with ministers. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. A minister is just another word for a servant. The term translated servant is, is a subordinate. It's any person subject to authority or controlled by another. The same Greek word could also be translated here, officer. It could be attendant. This is what we're thinking about when we think of servant. If you, if you study after some Bible scholars, you almost always get to this in, in this particular passage, and I love it. Um, They tell us that in Paul's day, the Greek word that he would have used, and I didn't write the Greek word down to bring it to you tonight, I should have. But for the people who would have heard that word then, they would have thought of something specific. And and we can play that game in our own world. You know, if I say baseball, you think of... What? Game? What do you think of? If I say baseball, what do you think of? Braves. That's what I was trying to get to. If I say football, you think of Titans. You know, not a read down there. What do you mean? Oh, gosh. 
I see you got a convert. Way to go. <laughs> so in, in the same vein here, the scholars would tell us that in Paul's day, when he would use that word, and, and we'll just say minister here, the, the thing that they would bring to their minds, same as we just did there, would be an underrower. So you would, you would have this uh, battleship. I got pictures of the battleship. Will you show us the pictures of the battleship, Mr. Jimmy? What a great picture. <laughs> so I, I was humming down pictures today. And in, in my books, these are the kind of the hand-drawn pictures that I've had. And then I Googled it, and I tried to find you guys some better pictures. But they all had these, like, buff, shirtless men. And I thought, I'm not showing that in church tonight for a couple of reasons. So this would be a Phoenician battleship. Will you show us the next one, Jimmy? This would be, a, you know, anybody name the culture? Egyptian, Egyptian right? It's hard, not hard to figure out. Let's go back to the other, Jimmy. It's a little bit easier to figure out what we're talking about here. So you see on the top deck of the boat, what do we have? Soldiers. These are the mighty warriors. But under, in that lower portion of this boat, we have people whose sole existence is to sit there and row. They're the engine. They're the motor. Okay, Jimmy, you can go back to the screen. So Paul is saying here, this is how you should think of us. Because they're thinking improperly. They're saying, well, I'm glad I was baptized by this guy. I'm glad I was baptized by that guy. And he says, no, this is how you should think of us as a minister. And they could bring to mind this, this battleship of their day and these guys who would sit down there in that lower deck and all they did was this right here. And if they said, go backwards, you know, you, you do this right here. MacArthur says here about an under rower, Paul expresses his humility by using a word literally meaning under rowers, referring, referring to the lowest, most menial, most despised galley slaves who rowed on the bottom tier of a ship. Wearsby says the, the word translated ministers is literally under rowers. It described the slaves who rowed the huge Roman galley ships. So he, he, he retranslate, quoting, quoting Paul here, as Paul is saying, we are not the captains of the ship, but only the galley slaves who are under orders. Now, is one, Paul, is one slave, Paul would say, greater than another? Now, when we think about it like that, when you think about Paul the Apostle versus some guy named Apollos, who's greater? Be honest. Paul, I mean, that's what we're all going to say. Oh, no, Paul. You can go over here and hear Apollos preach tonight. You go over here and hear Paul. Poor old Apollos. Nobody's going to go here and preach unless he sets up his meeting an hour or two earlier. And that illustrates Paul's point for us. He says, look, we're... Apollos sits across the aisle from me. He rows the right side of this boat. I row the left side. And when they say row, we row. And when they say stop, we stop. Who says this? Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. We are simply slaves in the galley. When I was in Bible college at Liberty University, one of the favorite times of the year would always be in May. It would be the end of the school year. When Jerry Falwell Sr. was still alive, it was called Super Conference. Anybody ever heard of or been to Super Conference? No. It sounds, you have, Brother Scotty. It just sounds super, doesn't it? Super Conference. 
when his son Jonathan became the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, they renamed it to Refuel. That's a little more relevant and hip, right? I like Super Conference better. I think about fireworks and balloons and guys on dirt bikes jumping high into the air for some reason. I don't know why, but I just think of super things. It was a great conference. And one year, to our delight, sort of unannounced, Chuck Swindoll came and preached. I'm on a Chuck Swindoll kick, if you, if you don't remember from last week. And so I'm sitting there as a senior in college and happy that I got credit for going to class that day for sitting to hear preachers, which I love to do. And Chuck Swindoll gets up and he says, I'm not going to preach you what I was supposed to preach you today. You know how conferences go. They assign these guys a theme and they tell them what to preach. And he reads to us from the end of chapter 3 in Corinthians and the beginning of chapter 4. And he gets right here to chapter 4, verse 1, and he starts to talk about under rowers. I'll never forget that sermon. I, I mentioned it to Sinead today. I said, do you remember what Chuck Swindoll preached at Liberty my senior year? And she said, yeah, under rowers. You wouldn't shut up about it. I was like, yes, that's exactly right. It was an impactful sermon. So I Googled it. I looked it up today, and I thought, that's been a long time ago. It wasn't even at his church. I don't know if they recorded it. And I couldn't find the video or the audio. But I found where Christianity Today or the Christian Post or somebody, it, the sermon came across in such an impactful way that it immediately sort of went viral, as viral as it could go back then. It wasn't like viral now with social media and all this stuff. But people immediately started telling other people how that changed their lives. They just they heard something they never heard before, and it made a difference. And so it got a published article about it. I was able from that published article to pull some clips, and I want to read you these clips from this sermon because I think it helps us get into mind what we're talking about here. Whether you're a pastor or whether you're a leader in some capacity, Whatever it is, I think we can all take something from this. So I'm just going to be reading you. These are direct quotes. The first one is, pastors are not called to be the captain of the ship. We've kind of missed that mark in the modern church, haven't we? What do we think the Lord wants us to do about this? That question is typically answered with, what does the preacher want to do? As if he's the one with the direct connection to heaven to figure this all out for the rest of us. He goes on to say, pastors are not called to be the captain of the ship. Rather, their job is to hold an oar and row. You and I are under rowers. We don't steer the ship. We're not responsible for its ultimate destination. Our job is to row. Have you ever thought about it like that? I don't, I don't think we operate like we think like that. We operate as if we think it's our job to steer the ship. It's on us to get it there. But that's not what God said. He said, I'll build my church upon Christ the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then as the early church was obedient and did what he told them to do, he added to that church daily such as should be saved. What were they supposed to do? They just were rowing. Did, did you see the picture? You think those galley slaves could see where they were going? No, one of the complaints you'll read about the galley slaves, it was stuffy, it was hot, and, and it would have been nice if they could have at least seen where they were taking this boat to, but they couldn't. They just had to row blind and just assume that somebody up there knew, knew what they were doing and taking them the right way. Does that feel like the Christian life to you or what? That's exactly what it's like sometimes. You're just rowing along and you're thinking, Lord, is this right? Am I doing what you want me to do? Yes, just row on. He goes on to say, you are an under rower and a steward. You're nothing more than that. 
There's not a celebrity among us. Not a skipper of the ship among us. We get to keep that oar in the water. When they think of you, let them remember you kept your oar in the water. That's my desire for our church. Just keep the, the oar out of the water is doing nothing. Just keep it rowing on there. While rowing on the bottom level of a big galley ship, you battle through temptations. It comes back again and again and strikes you little by little. It finds that one area that's not defended and moves in closer. One of the major temptations pastors will face is a spirit of entitlement. When they begin to think it's about time, I get a little respect. Or I wonder what life would be like if I rode on the next deck above me. You even think, I'd love to be the one being served those meals because I've been so hard at work feeding others. This is, for lack of a better word, self-pity. It is the most reprehensible of the sins among the underrowers and the stewards. You start feeling sorry for your sacrifices. He ends like this. God sent me here to warn you today. Now you've got to get the picture. This church has 20,000 people. I don't know how many people were sitting in that auditorium, but it's a, it's a vast place. And it's full of preachers who've come from all over to take in this conference. The theme is refuel, which means kind of like, let's pep you up to send you back out to your church, right? And this guy gets up there and says, you know what? I'm not going to preach you what I'm supposed to preach you. I'm going to preach you this to a whole bunch of pastors. And he ends by saying, I'm here to warn you today. I want you to watch out for the adversary. Guard yourself from any spirit of entitlement. Restrain any and all subtle temptation to gain attention or to find ways to promote yourself. And here's how he ended. Row, row, row your boat. Never, ever quit. Loyally, faithfully serving Christ, the captain of your ship. <laughs> Isn't that great? Very impactful. I mean, somebody sings row, row, row your boat to you. You never forget that. It's, it's a life-changing sermon from that moment on. This is what Paul is saying to us here. This is how you should receive us. This is how you should think of us. This is how you should treat us. As of the ministers of Christ, the servants, the under rowers, the galley slaves who hold the oars. Pratt writes here, such persons served others in a variety of ways, but always exalted those whom they served. Do you know how under rowers make the captain look great? You know how the captain gets glory? is when the vessel goes where it's supposed to. When it turns when it's supposed to turn, when it stops when it's supposed to stop, when it goes forward when it's supposed to go forward, but it goes fast when it's supposed to go fast, slow when it's supposed to go slow. Then everyone says, well, wow, that's a great captain. He's never lost a ship. He can guide that thing around the rocks. Well, that's possible when the under rowers keep their oars in the water. Christian leaders are servants of Christ who are to do his bidding with humility. John Calvin, many, many years ago, explained it this way. They ought to apply themselves not to their own work, but to that of the Lord. One who has hired them as his servants. And that they are not appointed to bear rule in any authoritative manner in the church, but are subject to Christ's authority. In short, that they are servants and not masters. This is how Paul says, this is how you should receive us as the ministers of Christ. And then he says, as stewards, as stewards of the mysteries of God. 
those entrusted or the managers, those who have the authority and the responsibility for something, those who are in charge of something, those who are responsible for or an administrator. But don't miss this point in the word steward. They're not the owner. So you go from galley servant, under rower, to you've been given some some authority and some administration, but you're not the owner. You've been given this by the owner. And he said to you, be a good steward of this which I've entrusted to you. But can you can you wrap your mind around why Paul is saying this to the church? Because they're putting their hope in men instead of in Christ. And he is saying here, you're, you're harming these men's testimony through this because their job is not to get God's glory. Their job is to steward God's glory. To manage it well so that he gets this glory. In their culture, a steward was a high-ranking servant. The, the steward would have been entrusted with the oversight of the entire household. Think Joseph. That would have been Egyptian culture, but I think that's a good idea. In Potiphar's house, he was the steward. And then Pharaoh made him sort of the country's steward. The stewards were responsible for the management and the distribution of household servants, uh, resources. A steward is a servant who cares for the person or the property of another. They would have been entrusted with nearly everything. The buildings, the fields, the finances, the food, all of the other servants. Even sometimes they would have been responsible for the owner's children. Their protection, their feeding, their safety, their education. The steward would have had the oversight of every single bit of this. They owned virtually nothing, but they controlled virtually everything. The steward could wield vast delegated authority, but was always accountable to the master to be found faithful. Now, I know that takes on a different connotation from an under rower, doesn't it? <laughs> you go from this slave and just, just row your boat. Well, that is right. But don't forget how important that oar is. As far as we're concerned as an under rower and a steward, the oar is everything to the master. It's his entire household. It's his family. It's his children. It's all of his food. It's all of his money. And He's delegated to you every bit of the power to be able to row that oar for Him. You don't own it, but you've been given the authority over it. Paul used his office here as an analogy for church leadership because both his office and church leadership were stewarding the same thing here. He says, stewards of the mysteries of God. These secret things. The term mysteries describes redemptive grace. We call it the gospel now. It's no longer a secret to us, but it was for a long time. It was something that, you know, wasn't clear. It was something you were expecting. It was something you were waiting on. So it came to be known as a secret or a mystery. It was finally revealed in Christ. And now God has commissioned the church to bring that treasure of revelation to the world. So this is how you should think of us, Paul says. Under rowers and stewards of God's mysteries. And then as he continues his thought about stewards there, he says the most important thing of them is that they be found faithful. Verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Paul and 
All leaders should be evaluated only by the standard of faithfulness to Christ. Their trustworthiness in handling the mysteries entrusted to them. This is our judge. This is our guide. Are they obedient and loyal to their master? That's the most important quality of a steward. And never understand that as anything human or earthly. Often we either make the church responsible to the pastor or we make the church responsible to the pastor responsible to the church. Or if the pastor has staff, they're all responsible to the pastor and then the pastor's the boss. And as long as he keeps the church happy, then the staff all get paid and you have this whole big wiry mess here. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. He said, I'm not working for your approval. I'm not living that you would be happy with me. Because while I want that to be the case, there's a day coming that, fear, that I'm more fearful of than you. And that's the great judgment day. When I stand before the, the owner, the boss, I've seen that show, uh, Undercover Boss. I love that one. It's, it's got, sometimes it's obvious that this guy is, you know, the, what they're doing here. And I think once the show kind of became popular, people expected it. But early on, you know, that was always wonderful to see the people's blood drain out of their face when they took off the mask. They said, I'm actually the owner of this company. Is that going to be us on Judgment Day? When we stand before Jesus Christ, or are we going to be able to worship at His feet? Thankful for the time he allowed us to spend just rowing our boats. What is required of a steward? To be faithful to Christ. McDonald writes here, man values cleverness, wisdom, wealth, and success. But God is looking for those who will be faithful to Jesus in all things. You know, it's funny, I've... At 13 years old, the Lord began to call me to preach. At 15, I surrendered to that call and started to preach. And so my entire teenage life, young adult life, and then wherever I'm at now in life, middle-aged, I guess, has all been spent simply with this mentality. I don't get me wrong. I want to be clever. I want to be wise. I want to be wealthy. I want to be successful. But, but my, my beacon... My compass, and I'm not, I'm not meaning this in a sinlessly perfect kind of a way, I'm not like I've done this every single day, but as a general rule, I've just decided, well, I'm going to be in ministry, so if I'm going to be great in ministry, I'm going to have to make Jesus great. If I'm going to be successful in ministry, then Jesus is going to have to be a success. You don't find much easier jobs than that. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne. He rules and reigns over all the nations. And I just get to talk about Him. But you know when I've made the biggest messes? Is when I've tried to impress people with myself. Or when I've tried to do it in the power of my own might. Our church in Georgia, I had reached a place there. I started as the grunt. I joked that my title was the associate pastor to moving the chairs. They paid me the large salary at 19 years old, $250 per month. Month. <laughs> well, see, yeah, that's right. 
Made sure I tithed off of it, though. There came a point when our pastor retired, new pastor was coming in. Some of the staff men had aged out or left or whatever, and I was sort of a guy with seniority. I was still pretty young. Like I left that role at 26 years old. But in that moment, I felt like this is my chance. If I was ever going to grasp at straws, this is the time to do it. And so there was a little bit of a thing going on there in the church and the Christian school. And the, the new pastor was also the principal of the school. And he presented this, this item, this opportunity to us there. Need somebody to really take the ball on this and run with it. We had the whole staff there. And I said, I got it. I raised my hand. I volunteered. I confidently said, I can handle this. I can manage it. And so it turned into like a fundraising event. And I was going to do this whole thing. And for months, we put it together. And we spent money on advertisements. We spent money on artwork for some marketing there. We called in some big name people. We played, paid for their plane tickets. We put them in a hotel. We put on this whole big thing to raise this dough because conventional wisdom said this was how you were supposed to do it. We get to the, we get to the end of the, well, we get to the night. It, this had been built up so large that our local radio station, which was a, a syndicated radio station, it was a part of a, a group that has radio stations all over the United States, but it handled most of everything east of Atlanta, large radio station. They had put us on live on the air, you know, I'd called in. The guy over there that, like, th just to help you get it from a Tennessee point of view, because you don't live down there. You know the guy who calls the Tennessee football games on Saturday? You know, on the radio, if you listen to the radio, there's a guy who talks. It's the one that sounds like he always has a hot dog in his mouth. It drives me nuts. Tennessee has the ball. That's how he talks. That guy worked at our local radio station during the week. And he called me up the day of this event. And he says to me, it's going to be SRO tonight. And I was like, well, I don't know what SRO is, but you seem proud about it, so I'm glad. And he said, that means, do you know what that means? Standing room only. This guy had seen the marketing, he had seen the advertising, he had seen the charisma. You know, I've done a good job. It was gonna be standing room only. So we put out more chairs. We had a whole gym. We had put out what we thought because of tickets we had pre-sold and, and we added more chairs. We pulled the bleachers out so we could put overflow seating in the, in the bleachers, which was my first mistake. So we ended up with like 1,200 chairs or so. And we had a pretty decent crowd. About 300 people showed up. But when you have 1,200 seats and 300 people show up, it looks empty. And then when you have a stage here and you have chairs there and you have bleachers in the back, people walk in the back door there and they naturally just went to those bleachers. So you have 300 people in the bleachers, nobody in the chairs, and we had these two celebrities we'd called in. It was a comedy show. They are going to do comedy for us. We'd called these guys in to do this celebrity for us, and I sneak them in through the back door from the airport. I just fed them barbecue. We'd spent more money than I needed to, but I kept promising the guy, we're going to make it back, and we're going to make money off this. You've got to spend money to make money, right? The guys come in that were the celebs, and they, they were pumped up too. They, you know, they were like, well, this is going to be a big deal. They looked in the door, and they said, you, you've got to get people to move out of those bleachers. They're, we can't play for that. They're, 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 you know, how wide is a basketball court? 50 feet? They're 50 feet away from us here. And so we, we closed the bleachers down. We, we had somebody get on stage and kind of do a little song and dance while we kind of rearranged everything. We tried to make it like it wasn't as small as it was. Somebody shows up from, there's an organization, I can't think of the name of it now, 
But it would be like if you were you were playing music, you had a dentist office and you're playing background music and you didn't have the license to play that background music, you'd be breaking the law and stealing from that artist. There are people that go around and, and enforce this. Well, it's the same way with jokes, evidently. We had marketed this so well. A guy shows up and he says, I'm here from, you know, whatever, AARP or something. You know, he had his initials. And he said, I need to pre-script these guys' shows. And, well, you know, you can't do this. I said, we're a small Christian school. We're, we paid these guys. They're going to tell jokes. You take it up with them after the show. So I had to fight this guy. Finally, the, the talent in the back just said, just do it. Just call us up there. Let us do our show and let us go home. And they did, and it was funny, and it was fine, and we had a big time and all of this. Get down to the end of the night, and we were Baptists, so you count the money that night. So I pre-turned in all my expenses. We had some money already pre-sold, and they counted the gate money. And the whole big thing, months went into, I mean months. Like I went home on that night, passed out in the bed, and Sinead didn't see me for about 36 hours. I was just dead to the world. We made a little over $1,000. This is man's strength. Now, I was young. I was foolish. There's a lot of mistakes there. Point simply is, what, what's the pressure on you and I? What's the pressure on Harpeth Baptist Church? It's just a row. Just, just row the boat. You have to do all of that. You don't have to put all your resources into all of that. Where should the money go? God has blessed our church, in my opinion, astronomically with offerings. Where should this ministry? Spend it on ministry. So Paul says here in verse 2, a steward should be faithful. Verse 3, and we'll go fast from here. He opposed the standards of leadership that this church had endorsed. He said, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. So he writes that his concern is not with their opinion. He writes that only God could know how faithful Paul had been and only God could properly evaluate Paul's performance. He takes this far, so far to even comment here, I don't even judge myself, Paul says. Now, I don't think this means that Paul never evaluated his own life because we have other records from Paul where he will say things like, I'm the chief of sinners and these types of things. We see self-evaluation through Paul. I think he means that he was not going to replace Christ as his judge. If you're shooting archery, what's your judge? The target. It's not the crowd. It's not the referee that they sit there to make sure you don't break the rules. It's the bullseye. If you're running a race, what's the judge? The finish line. And this is Paul's point here. He's saying, I'm not going to be judged of you. I'm not even going to be judged of myself. He that judges me is the Lord. That's verse 4. Now, he's not rejecting legitimate human criticisms here. This is a simple acknowledgement that in finality, Jesus would be his judge. MacArthur clarifies very well here. He says, Paul is not being arrogant are saying that he is above fellow ministers, other Christians, or even certain unbelievers. He is saying that a human verdict on his life is not the one that matters, even if it was his own verdict. Sproul says, though Paul's conscience is clear, ultimately only God determines whether one has proved faithful. So that's why he says in verse 4 that it doesn't matter if he thinks he's blameless. There's a good quote in that regard. 
I think it's Schweitzer. Does that sound right? Is that a philosopher, a theologian? The quote is something along the lines of, a quiet conscience is the tool of Satan. What does a quiet conscience do to you as a human? Cause you to be apathetic. When you feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm all right with the Lord. Well, you're good, you're, you're good then, right? You don't have to do anything. Interesting quote. Paul didn't, Matt say, it doesn't matter. He says, for I know nothing by myself. He says, it's not by this that we're justified. My own conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean anything. You guys ever met a lost person whose conscience was clear? I have. They say, well, I'm a good person. I'm better than most of the people at your church. Not here. That was the church in Georgia. They said that about They said, I don't need that. There's a bunch of hypocrites down there. They had a clear conscience. Aren't you glad that's not how you're justified? How many days do you not have a clear conscience? That's most days for me. I'm so thankful that in spite of my own ability to clear my own conscience and forgive myself, the Lord has already forgiven me. What a blessing. Verse 4, I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. God is the judge. Now this is not Paul saying either that we shouldn't deal with sin. Because in chapter 5, he's going to, I mean, if you've read ahead, or if you can read the heading over the top of your Bible there, mine says fornication in the church. It's going to be fun next, well, we won't get there next week. When we get to that one, that's going to be an interesting thing to deal with together. He's about to just head straight into some sin and deal with it. This is his judgment, not of that, but of faithfulness and stewardship. Then in verse 5, Paul drew a conclusion from his earlier argument. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Be careful in your appraisal of Christian service. Because in the end, God will judge the outer and the inner. He will judge what we can see that is done, but he will also be able to judge the inner, the motives behind what was done that we cannot see. So Paul says, this is how you should regard Christian leaders. And then very briefly in verse 6 and 7, he says, this is why you should regard them this way. And these things, brethren, have I in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. Did you catch that? He says, I I gave you these illustratively, transferred in a figure. Paul says, about me and Apollos, for your sakes. Okay, why then? That you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. That no one of you be puffed up for one against the other. I wrote this to help you not be puffed up for one against another. And then in verse 7, he makes a very clarifying statement in this whole ordeal. We're all stewards. And God is the one who made us all different, to steward differently in his domain. So why could we take pride in one or the other? You know, if we're all just rowers. You could look across the aisle and say, well, your, your oar looks different than mine. We're still just rowing. For who maketh thee differ from another? I hope you can answer that question. 
honestly. Who made you like you are? God did. So many in the modern church really battle in the mental health area. Depression, anxiety, inadequacy, suicidal thoughts. Let verse 7 be healing for you. Who made you do to differ from another? One of the biggest areas that kind of attacks a Christian's mental health is this idea that I'm just not enough. Or I didn't do it right. Or I can't do it often enough. Or I can't do it this way like they did it. We've created these impossible systems for ourselves. We pedestal these people so that everything they tweet or post or author and is published has to be right. And if we can't live to that standard, then we must be wrong. There's a funny show that we watch and somebody comes around in the show, they're, they're, they're in their workplace there and they're updating everyone's emergency contacts. You know, and somebody says, well, put my wife down. This is her new cell phone number. And the one guy, they said, what's your new emergency contacts? And he says, just write the hospital. <laughs> if there's an emergency, just take me to the hospital. I kind of like that way of thinking. That's the way to live a Christian life. What preachers do you like? What authors do you read after? Do you know the answer? The Bible. It's the only true standard. Now I'm in the middle of seven books right now. Don't get me wrong. I love to read. Got a new A.W. Tozer today that I can't wait to, to break in. But you've got to be able to balance that. And I say this in a loving way just to kind of make it light. You'll be a basket case, right? I don't mean that in the health way. I meant that in the spiritual way. We don't want to be that. We should be the most peaceful people in all the world. How can we be that way? When we realize that God made us to differ from another. Well, well God, they're prosperous and I'm poor. They're healthy and I'm sick. It's raining over there and we're dry here. What do you think Ukraine Christians are praying right now? I might get shot by tomorrow. And we're mad because the Braves game's blacked out tonight. Who made you differ from one another? And that thou, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Can you answer that question? What do you have that you have not received? Is there anything at all? Where'd you even get your DNA? Somebody gave you that. You don't have anything that you didn't receive. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? <laughs> yeah, you give a kid some money. I wish I had the little guys in here. If I keep going along like this, we might start having the little guys in here. Ben didn't get the plane to. I told him just to bring the kids in here. Just bring them. It'll be okay. They don't want to be rude, though. It's like, it just you know, makes sense. But we could bring one of those up here. Mike could do this to you guys. Give him a $5 bill. Oh, they would grin. Some kids would like hold it up. Look, look what I got. <laughs> now, that's fun and cute and all, but did that kid earn that? No, it was just given to them. Okay, don't blow it all in one place. This is what Paul is saying here. If you received it, why are you glorying in it? You're glorying in it like you were, it wasn't given to you. You're glorying in it like you created it, like you deserved it, like you earned it. 
And that's not how it should be. God is the one who made us all different. All we have is from Him. So our task is not to be more gifted. Rather, our task is to steward well the gifting that He has given us. That's the trap. Lord, you made me a preacher. So I'm going to work hard to do everything I can to be the absolute best preacher in the whole wide world. It's not what God wants. He just wants you to row, row, row your boat. Lord, you've made me whatever somebody else is in here. He wants you to steward well your gifting. When I was a teen, I heard this preached as wattage and light bulbs. It's a good illustration. There's 65 watt bulbs and there's 100 watt bulbs and there's everything in between and some less than that. What's in your fridge? Like a 10 watt bulb or something like that? Is that right? It's not much. 20? You imagine you're a 20 watt bulb. Every time the fridge opens, you turn on and look and you see the 100 watt bulbs up there and the can lights over the stove. I want to shine like that. You know what's going to happen to that 20 watt bulb the one day that it just busters up the power? really tries to work that 100 watts out, it's going to go pop. It's going to be the end of that 20 watt bulb. Do you know why your life feels like that sometimes? Just be you. My pastor wrote poetry and one that I always clung to, clinged to. Hey Lord, I'm getting tired of being me. I want to be like some of those other preachers I see. Lord, I want to be one of those evangelists and preach with fire. Or maybe be a scholar and have all that knowledge acquired. Or maybe, Lord, I could have a powerful pen and write books and be in demand by the brethren. And he goes on and on and on. I can't remember the rest of the poem. The ending is, but finally it became plain for me to see If I was going to serve the Lord, I was just going to have to be me. So I've decided rise or fall. I'm going to be old brother Willard. I'm not old brother Willard, but that's the only way I know to say the poem and give it my all. So if you don't like what you see, pooey on you, because God called me to be me. (laughs) Brother Willard was told once by a publisher. He did have some published work, but one publisher one time handed him his notes back and he said, You know, some people like fine wine, but everybody drinks water. This is water. (laughs) And he said, he took it as a compliment. He said, hey, you sell way more water than you do fine wine typically. If we're not careful, we'll operate the opposite of that. And we'll be full of pride for ourselves. Or some of us are a little more spiritual. We'll be full of pride for our leader. That's the American way, isn't it? Stand by your man. Let your man be Jesus. Let your captain be God. Row, row, row your boat. You're in Kingston. You're in White Bluff. You're in Dixon. Wherever you are, grow where you're planted. Wherever you are, be all there. Stop trying to be more than you are. Just just shine as you. You're wonderful. 
God has made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has put you in this position at this time in human history to be yourself. And I know sometimes you've got to bite your tongue because it's not the nice manners. But I would say to most of you in here, most of you in here tonight, not Ian with his prayer request last Wednesday night, but to most of you in here tonight, you're probably biting your tongue a little too much. You're full of Bible knowledge and you're full of life wisdom. And you could be a great help to a lot of people if you would just in a kind way share what you know. We quote John MacArthur a lot, but he's all the way across the, the, the island from us. And he can't help everybody. But you can. There's people in your life I'll never get to preach to. Did you know you're a preacher? I'm not declaring women preachers. But nevertheless, how are we to be received? And why? Ministers and stewards. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for time together in your word. I pray that you would forgive my shortcomings. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work with your word in the hearts of your people and in a way that man could never. Heal, heal the hurting tonight. Encourage the church to live out our gifting. You have saved us and you have given us an ability. So help us to go and do what it is you've placed us here to do. Lord, we love you. It warms our hearts tonight just to think of the God of creation sending this letter to the church in Corinth, but letting it find its all the way here to the Bibb Center in White Bluff, that we, the church, could take it in as well and use it. So help us to go and use it. In Jesus' name, amen.